You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the Book of Acts in the New Testament, and get ready to study God's Word together in a series we call, We Are All Witnesses, Part 3. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen by all the other campuses here. We're here in Rolling Meadows. Excited to be here with you. If you're new here, my name is Jeff Bucknam. I am one of the pastors here, and I get the rich privilege of studying God's Word together with you. Uh, One of the things that we do at Harvest, if you're new, is we go through verse by verse in Scripture so that we hear all that God has to say to us, and we're in the middle of the book of Acts. And uh, Acts 15, in fact, verse 36 is where we're going to start. We're going to have a little short section today that we're going to go through, Um, but you'll find it really fascinating, I promise. So if you have a Bible, turn there to Acts 15, verse 36. Um, While you're doing that, I want to tell you of a couple of church split stories I've come across over the last number of years. These are not happy things that happen when a church splits. It's usually over something that's not usually that important. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's over a doctrinal issue. You know, somebody says something about Jesus that isn't true about him and the other side wants to fight about it. And so they end up becoming two different churches. Sometimes, though, it's about other stuff, like who the pastor is, or who they're not, or whether or not we should have a piano bench in one part of the stage as opposed to the other. You know, you might think I'm kidding about that one, but that's one of the stories. I got two of them here that I've selected out of many that I could share with you. Uh, The first one is actually about a Welsh church, right? in Wales, on the uh, western part of the United Kingdom. Um, This church had a fight, and the fight was over uh, which one of the pastors they were going to hire. Half the church was for one pastor, and half the church was for the other. And this is what ensued, according to the local newspaper. Uh, Yesterday, the two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns, and the congregation sang two, each side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger as the Sunday morning service turned into a bedlam. Through it all, the two preachers continued trying to outshout each other with their sermons. This sounds like fun, by the way. Eventually, a deacon called a policeman to came in, and they, be, they began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. They advised the 40 people in the church to return home. The rivals filed out, still arguing with one another. And finally, last night, one of the groups called a Let's Be Friends meeting, but unfortunately, it broke up into an argument. Second story. This is from Landover, Maryland in August of 1999. Local paper there wrote, 100 years of Christian fellowship, unity, and community outreach ended last Tuesday in an act of congregational discord. Holy Creek Baptist Church was split into multiple factions. The source of the dissension is a piano bench which still sits behind the 1923 Steinway piano to the left of the pulpit. Members and friends at Holy Creek Baptist say that the placement of the old bench was always a source of hostility. Of course, 
it's no surprise that a split has resulted. At present, Holy Creek Congregation will be having four services each Sunday. There has been an agreement mediated by an outside mediator so that each faction will have its own separate service with its own separate pastor. Since the lead pastor is not speaking to the associate pastors, each will have their own service, which will be attended by factioned members. The services are far enough apart that neither group will encounter the other. An outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between services to please both sides and avoid any further conflict that could result in violence. Sad, right? You know, church splits happen. They've been part of the Christian scene for lots and lots of years. Even back to the very early stages, people get be in their bonnet about a particular thing or something else. Sometimes it's really petty, like a church bench. Other times it's really important, like I said, about a doctrinal issue or something else. It's usually whatever side you end up finding yourself on in a church split, you usually feel that the thing you're arguing about is actually more important than you think. Might have some historical, you know, significance where the bench was sad or where that painting was in the wall or what color the carpet is will honor a particular part of the church that has passed away, something like that. But disagreements happen. I've talked to missionaries. And one of the things that missionaries will tell you is that the hardest part of their job is not usually uh, raising money to go on the mission. It's not usually, you know, learning the language, although that's obviously quite hard. It's not usually accommodating or contextualizing to a different culture. It's usually working with other Christians. Most of the missionaries I know, in fact, have come back off the field. When, when they've come back, I've said, what happened? And they've said, well, everything was going great until whew, Joe showed up, Jeff showed up. It's usually that Jeff showed up, right? Do you know what I find re really actually encouraging is that in in the Bible, there are actual stories, though, about these kinds of disagreements. Most of the time when they're there, we kind of want to say, right, the author is going to take a side. You know, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is going to be like, yeah, this guy was right and this guy was wrong. Don't be like this wrong guy, be like the right guy. And that, yet you have this passage in Acts 15, 36 to 41, where it is really hard to determine who is right and who is wrong. In fact, it's kind of like the author Luke is leaving it sort of open-ended. Which is not uncommon. Have you ever had a discussion with one friend and you're like, yeah, that's the way I should view it. And then the other friend who's having a fight with that friend, you end up talking to them and you're like, oh, geez, that's the way to do it. And so as a third party, you're like, man, I don't know. They're both legitimate views. Well, here's a Here's a passage of scripture that talks about conflict that ended a mission partnership. What do we learn? Well, I'm going to point out three things that all kind of build on each other. Number one, conflict happens. Second, God's not conflicted. 
And third, so let it go. See, you don't even need to listen to anything else anymore. There's the whole sermon, right? In three stages, right? God, conflict happens, but God's not conflicted, so let it go. So here's the first of those. Conflict happens, verse 36 of Acts chapter 15. Reads this way, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, uh, this, of course, has a context. You know, we're, we're, we're jumping in kind of in the middle, so let me tell you what happened immediately prior. Uh, Paul and Barnabas became missionaries together in Acts 13. We're in Acts 15. In Acts 13, they became missionaries together when the, when the Lord through the Holy Spirit in one of their church gatherings, spoke to a prophet, and a prophet then passed it on and said, hey, listen, um, uh, I want you to set aside Paul and Barnabas for my work, says the Lord. So they're going to become the mission group, and they're going to go out, and they're going to preach the gospel to lots of places. They show up to uh, an, an island called Cyprus, and they go along the island, and on the other side of the island, they face their first opposition, and eventually they make their way north, and Famous first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and of Barnabas. One of the things that happens when they are doing this, though, is they find that most of their converts, most of the people that they're able to reach, are not the Jewish people who they are initially preaching to in the synagogues, but they're, it's among the Gentiles, the people who are not Jewish, that they're getting the most hearing. And so uh, there's this big row that erupts in Jerusalem where the first church was because they're hearing stories about how these Gentiles are coming to faith. And the question the church in Jerusalem is having is, wait a minute, we have forever lived under this Old Testament law. You know, you have to be circumcised, you have to keep certain food laws, you can't be ceremonially unclean, you got to do all this stuff. So are Paul and Barnabas, when they're preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus to these people, are they saying... Hey, you should come to Jesus and that's it? Or are they saying you should come to Jesus and keep the, the Old Testament law? Because we think it should be the second of those. So they send a group through some of the churches that Paul and Barnabas had, had, had planted. And they start saying to those churches, you guys need to keep the look. Listen, I know you believe that it's just Jesus, you know, that I can believe in Jesus and I need nothing else for salvation. But it, it, Paul and Barnabas, they, they're well-meaning, but they didn't add the second part. You also need to be Jewish. You, you have to keep the law in addition to the Jesus part. That makes you a, a, a Christian. We do this, by the way, all the time. We, we, you know, we say stuff like, well, you got you to Jesus plus have the right viewpoint on a pandemic. Jesus plus, don't dance. Jesus plus, you better not drink alcohol. Jesus plus the right view on how to raise your kids. Jesus, see, good Christians have Jesus plus a whole bunch of other stuff, right? So the, these guys, they're called Judaizers. They go up and they have this debate with Paul and Barnabas who are like, no, that's not true. And a big row erupts. So they go back down to Jerusalem and they have a, a council, right? That's what you do. You get together and you have a meeting and you say, what, what, what's going to be right? And the council, after a bunch of deliberations, say it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit to agree with Paul and Barnabas. Jesus plus nothing, praise God. So after some days, after the council has made the decision, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, 
hey, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. It's a great idea. Do you remember the churches we planted, Barnabas? Yeah, those would be great. We should go back and visit them and see what they're doing. The reason I wasn't actually around uh, last week in the pulpit is the week prior, I had been in British Columbia where I used to be a pastor and I was, went back there for a small conference and I found most of my time was spent, uh, certainly at the conference, most of my time was spent in addition to meeting with people all the time. I loved it. I loved spending all the time with these dear folks but it's one of the things you do. You go back after you've pastored a place and you show up and they end up kind of like telling you all the stuff that they've been struggling with regarding whatever. Go to the hospital and meet a guy who's facing his, his last days and you sit across from them and you try to encourage them. And this is what Paul and Barnabas want to do. They're like, look, we had a lot to do with these dear people. Let's go and see how their lives are going and let's see if we can encourage them in the gospel. Also... It's really important for us to bring this decision of the council to them because there are going to be other false teachers who walk around and say that the council was wrong. So let's go and show them that the council was right, okay? Barnabas is like, boo, that's an awesome idea. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Who's that? Well, listen, the Luke who wrote this book, he weaves his story throughout. Sometimes he mentions his name and you're like, why is he mentioning his name? And the answer to that is he was setting up this moment. So who is John Mark? Well, uh, the first time we meet the guys in Acts chapter 12, Peter gets freed miraculously from prison. He doesn't know, he thinks it's a dream, but an angel actually breaks his chains and leads him out through the gate and puts him, plop him right in the middle of the street in Jerusalem. And when he's standing there, he came to himself and he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, this is the, the ruler of the area, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And they were expecting that he was going to die. Put him in prison, and we kill him, and this Christian thing is all over. But uh, the angel of the Lord uh, rescued him. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Mary is all over the place in these scriptures, this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is another Mary, but she's really involved. She's got a big house, and she houses the first, so this is the first Christian church, is housed in Mary's house. She is the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Okay, so he, he is the son of the woman who houses the church. So all the stuff that you read about the church in Jerusalem at the beginning part of the book of Acts, John Mark, little John Mark was there for it. Everything that happened, he had been part of seeing these amazing things take place and witnessing that Peter was released from prison miraculously and he was there. I love it. I don't know how old he was, right? So... Mother John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. And so he is the son of Mary. The next time we meet him, it's just a few, verse later, a few verses later, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. They had taken some money from a town called Antioch 
And they had taken it to Jerusalem because they were having a big famine in Jerusalem. And the church in Antioch was like, this would be a great way for us to show unity in Christ. We'll give some money. It'd be like if we gave some money to some, some church in Louisiana or something to that effect. We want to show unity with them. And this is what had happened. Serve, this service was some money that they had, had brought from the Antioch church to Jerusalem. And then when they came back, they brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. So they go to Jerusalem and they say, John, Mark, we would love to have you join us as part of our little mission team, our little group. So come up to Antioch. It's an amazing church. We would love to have you there. So he, he comes from Louisiana back up to Chicago. And the next time we meet him in Acts 13, in the very beginning, where Paul and Barnabas are called forth, like I said, and they are sent out. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus, of course, is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And when they arrived at Salamis, which is on one side of the island, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So this guy is part of the, of the little group, Paul and Barnabas and their little cadre, and Mark is like a key member of the cadre. He's the young guy with them, right? probably really great around the campfire, right? Telling them, getting them in touch with some of the young lingo, whatever, I don't know. But they're, they're traveling around. They see some real fruit on the island of Cyprus. But then in Acts 13, 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia and John left them behind and returned to Jerusalem. What had happened is they got to the other side of the island and there's this guy named Bar-Jesus. He is a, Elemis is his actual name, but he goes by Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, and he is a false prophet. And he has the governor of the area in his little hand. And he says to the governor of the area, and Paul and Barnabas come, don't listen to a word they say. And so Paul says one of the great lines in the whole book, you know, you son of a devil, he says to this guy, Bar-Jesus. And so the guy backs off and you have the governor who's set free, but it is the first time that opposition strikes the missionary group. The first time, there's a violence in it, there's just this guy, Bar-Jesus, who says, don't listen to him, to his governor. And it's at that point that John Mark says, I'm out. But nobody told me there was going to be some, some false teacher dude whispering into the ear of governors saying that we're not in this. Like, I am out. I'm going back. Where's he going back? I'm going back to Jerusalem to where my mom is. Okay? She makes good food, and I'm going to sleep in my bed, and she'll do all my laundry. Okay, so... That's John Mark. He was a young guy who started out really well with these guys, was a chosen part of their team, but in the crisis moment, took off running. So back to our text. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. See this little word here, wanted? The, the right translation, this is actually what we call an imperfect verb form in, in Greek, and what it means is he was wanting. It was a, it's a continuous idea. So it's not just like he mentioned it one time. He wanted, meaning he was wanting over and over and over again. Hey, Paul, we should take John Mark. Mark, John Mark. Remember John Mark? He should come. John Mark, John Mark, John Mark, John Mark. And he wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul, same 
verb form, thought best or was insisting, no, 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 no. Not to take with them, notice, one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. What are you talking about, Barnabas? Do, do you not remember what this dude did? What you need to understand is in the first century when you abandoned your, uh, when you abandoned your leader on a trip like this, on a mission like this, it was essentially like you abandoning your commanding officer in the military. In the first battle, you get out there and the commanding officer is expecting you to produce covering fire and he takes off. You take off, sorry. And you go off to the, you know, back to mom's house because she's got food and laundry. How do you think the commanding officer is going to feel about you? How do you think the whole army's going to feel about you? It was considered shameful. So uh, a number of years ago, uh, I went to the little island nation of Grand Cayman on a cheap, uh, on a cheap cruise. Uh, cheap cruises happen in uh, July and August during that time of the year for some reason. And so when you go down to the Caribbean in July and August, we were very, very hot, my wife and I, but it was a cheap cruise, and so we'd never done it. We go down to this place called Grand Cayman, and uh, Grand Cayman is beautiful, and they have this massive beach called Seven Mile Beach, and it's the kind of beach that uh, has just white sand everywhere and that aqua blue water, and when you, when you go in, though, it drops a little bit down to about nine feet deep, maybe, so you can't put your feet on the, on the bottom without going under, but you can see the bottom and all the stuff while you're swimming and kind of snorkeling along. Now, we didn't have any snorkel gear. We were just... Uh, swimming along, we have goggles, right? So swimming along, we go out to we, well, quite a ways. Now, my wife is not a great swimmer. Uh, she always stays near me when we swim. I used to be a lifeguard. I know that it looks, I used to compete in swimming. And you're like, really? Are you sure? Now, and I'm just telling you, I floated really well, right? I just, it was easy for me to stay above the water. So um, she would stay near me because if anything went wrong, I was able to kind of grab her and take her some places. Anyway, we get out there and we're swimming around and we were together for a little while and then she gets more comfortable and she goes over this way and I'm over this way. I'm looking down and it's beautiful fish, but down there's this big rock and there's a hole in the side of this rock and I'm looking at this rock going, I wonder what the heck is that hole? And all of a sudden, out from the hole comes a head of the kraken or something. He comes out and I'm like, no thank you. And I turned, and like I said, I can swim pretty fast. I turned, and I took off back to the thing, leaving my bride uh, to the Kraken. Okay? And she, if you ever ask her this question about this, she'll say, all I, all I know is that I looked over, and all I could see was white water with your feet just taken off the other direction. And I was like, what are you doing? And then all of a sudden, she started freaking out. And I wasn't thinking a thing about her, because I was like, I'm not going to die out here. So I was swimming and all the way in. I got halfway in and I was like, oh yeah, I'm married. And then I took off best. And now when I tell you this story and all of, many of you are going like, that's shameful, Jeff. Why did you tell us that publicly? That's an actually shameful thing that you did. By the way, there's other stories like this about me <laughs> with my wife. Uh, one day I'll tell you about the spider. I left her to, to, to die. Anyway... It's shameful, right? In your heart, you're like, that's absolutely ridiculous. He should, she should never swim with you again. 
If I said to her, oh, no, don't worry about it. This time we'll go out there and it'll be fine. She'll be like, no, it's not going to be fine. I know it's going to happen. You do, you do this. This is what Paul's saying. Dude, do you not understand that this guy at the key moment ditched us? Like when the, the animal showed its head, he took off. We were depending on him so much and he took off. So between them, there arose a, here's the word, a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. This word actually is the same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament that talks about what happens inside of God's heart right before he shows his wrath on people. There is a a stirring in his heart of anger And then he exhibits his wrath toward the object that caused the stirring. So it's a powerful word. We're not talking about, oh, I guess we'll just have to part ways. We're talking about "Mm, Barnabas. And he's like, can you believe Paul? Sharp disagreement. So who you got? Who's, who's going to be on team Barnabas and who's going to be on team, on team Paul? Because here's Barnabas's argument. Um, look, we'll find out in a minute. John Mark is my cousin. Like I know him, know his family. We know his mom. We know, we know a lot about him. He's a young guy. Young men or people early in their training don't always do things right. And you, always, you have to have space for that, Paul. So yes, did we get out there and he ditched us? Absolutely. Was it shameful? Yes. But I'm telling you, he's learned from it. So this time when that happens, he won't ditch us. Paul, you have to remember, okay, that the only reason that you're in the ministry at all is when you came to faith in Christ and then you showed up near Jerusalem and nobody wanted to include you because they thought you were lying about being a Christian I'm the guy who came out to you and invited you in. You're here, Paul, because I did for you what I'm saying we do for John Mark. How can you sit there and now be a leader based upon the grace I showed you and now not show that grace to him? What are you doing, man? But Paul's argument, uh, dude, he ditched us. I, I have nothing against John Mark. I think he's a good guy. We're, we're friends. But there's a difference between having a friend and having a comrade in arms. And if you're going to go to war with somebody, he better be ready to shoot. Barnabas, listen, we showed up there And the first time that someone showed opposition, he took off. Do you remember what happened after that? We traveled all through that area and eventually we end up in Lystra and they dragged me out of this city because they thought I was dead. They left me there for dead. This guy ditched us when when some little little twerp was whispering in the ear of the governor. What do you think he would have done when death was on the line? He's a good guy. He's just not ready, man. He's just not. 
The mission is too valuable to take risks on people who are not ready. Who you got? Who's Luke got? Because that's really the question, right? When you read the passage, aren't you looking at it and going, okay, Luke, which one of these guys is right? You're just looking for Luke to say, <clears throat> and Paul was an idiot. Or, and Barnabas just didn't get it. But neither of the, it doesn't say that at all. All it does is say, yeah, there was this sharp disagreement that happened between these two really godly people, and they both thought they were really right. So... I actually think that's probably the point here. He deliberately leaves it vague because both views are defensible. And you say, well, what are we supposed to learn from that, Luke? Why are you sharing this at all? Well, I think it's because of this. We all want to get along. Like we strive to get along. But in a world where we don't see the end from the beginning and we have to make decisions based upon only the information sitting in front of us at a given time, and we're trying to make those decisions in the interest of the persons we're dealing with and in the interest of the God who's called us to faithfulness, sometimes we come to different conclusions. And we're not sure who's right. I think I'm right. And in heaven, you'll see I was. Or maybe not. Look, my reasons are good. And your reasons are good. And I don't think your reasons are as good as my reasons, but my reasons are not as good in your mind as your reasons. So I, what are we doing here? Well, there's a sharp disagreement. This happens. <laughs> doesn't it? Doesn't this happen? This happens quite a lot, actually. We genuinely disagree about strategies for things. We genuinely disagree over all sorts, all sorts of stuff. Now, before we go too far here, I got to tell you what this is not. This is not basically, because this story's in the Bible, we sit and go, well, I guess we can just disagree like jerks with each other all the time. You know what? I've got a lot of opinions about politics and many other things, and this now gives me permission to just be strident, immovable. Okay, hold on, because we do have passages of Scripture that really do command and encourage uh, us to get along. You already in uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 4, two of the ladies in the church, in the church of Philippi, weren't, weren't getting along. Their names were Euodia and Syneche, and Paul says, I entreat, I urge Euodia and I entreat Syneche to what? Agree in the Lord. Stop fighting, ladies. Stop disagreeing. You guys can get along. You can get along. This is actually a noble Christian trait. Ephesians chapter 4. The first half of Ephesians chapter one, one, chapters 1 to 3 is an explanation of who you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus died on a cross and he rose again on the third day. If you are in Christ, meaning that you have faith in Christ, you have died with Jesus and you have been raised with Jesus. That is true about you. Now, you might not feel that way, but that's what's true about you from God's point of view. You are a resurrected person in Jesus Christ. And so there are certain obligations that you have toward that kind of grace. 
God's lavished grace on you, so now how do you respond? And Ephesians 4 is where he starts on how should you respond. Listen, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. The things I just described about you, live like that. Be a resurrected, freed from sin, going to heaven person. A kingdom of God citizen. Be that person, because that's who you are. Well, what does that look like, Paul? Well, you, you have all humility and gentleness and you have patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the what? Unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It is a command of scripture that you and I try our very best to agree in the Lord. So what this is not is an excuse for you and I to just fight with each other over little things like piano benches. Well, then what is it? If that's what it's not, what, what is it? Well, it's, I think, the regrettable situation in which we find ourselves this side of eternity. We just sometimes don't agree, and we're not sure who's right. I uh, was the assistant coach of a baseball team when my son was 13. The coach was a friend, great guy. Um, he had to make the decision on who gets to be on the team or not. It's like a travel team. And so he's going through his decision-making process after the, after, the, um, after the tryouts and stuff. My son was one of the better players, so he's on the team. His son, my friend's son, he was on the team because he's one of the stronger players. And then you kind of get down to the group of like maybe there's eight kids and you can only take six of them but they're all kind of equal, but he made a judgment based upon that, that one of the children of a Christian friend of ours was not going to make the team. He was a good Christian friend of ours. And he churched together, hanging out at the baseball games, families sit together. So he made the decision, we're not gonna do this. I remember him telling me, and he said, I'm not gonna take so-and-so for the team. And I was like, oh dear. Oh, are you sure? Yeah. You know what's going to happen. Yeah, no, I know what's going to happen. But, Jeff, I would feel like I was wrong, like I was wronging people on the team if I took that son as opposed to these other boys. I just would. And just because we're friends does not mean that I need to show partiality to that boy when he's not as strong a player as these other people. And we need these other people in these particular positions. And he talked me through it. I was like, I mean... It's a great decision. Honestly, on the face of it, it's a great decision. All right, so he goes out, and we put the, he puts the list out, and of course, the son of this guy was not on the team, and the guy lost his mind. Of course he did. He, he lost it because, if, you know, I mean, he, his son was close to being the same as the last three or four kids on the team. He just, and his dad was very upset, understandably. If I was in his shoes, I'd be very upset as well. It got to the point, in fact, that, you know, split. The kid went over to another team and did some other things, and we see each other in Costco, and that dad of that son who was cut sees me coming, and he goes the other way, you know? I forgot my underwear, right? He goes back to the... So who you got? All I know is it left a mark. 
The guy who mentored me, he actually um, left his youth pastor position at a very large church in the Seattle area. He left his church youth pastor position and eventually started another church, the one that I attended. And the reason he left his youth pastor position is because the lead pastor of the church came in, his new lead pastor came in and said, okay, so this is the new way we're going to do things. And the lead pastor's approach was, look, what we're going to do is we're kind of going to, and I don't mean to make this pejorative or negative, but we're going to kind of soft sell the gospel in the sense that when people come in and they want to know what it is that we believe about Jesus, we're going to talk to them about really practical, important things on how they can live a better life and how Jesus can lead them into good, you know, wholeness. And then after they get involved in the church and kind of the smaller groups and stuff, then we're, we're going to talk about the, like the, the challenges and requirements of, of discipleship. And my mentor was like, absolutely not. We, we are going to tell them front, just right in the front, you know, this is what it means to follow Jesus. You don't like it? Whoop, there's the door. Now, who's right? I don't know. But they left, left the church, didn't talk to each other. My church grew up and that church grew. And I remember when I was in the youth group, we knew instinctively that the youth group of that other church was like, eh. He just, you know, we went the other way. They were sort of our rivals. I don't know who's right. I just know it left a mark, right? Oh, this is talking about all sorts of other people. So let me just, okay. So I know that we don't want to talk about COVID or anything. I really do. And that's fine. But uh, we do need to do a little postmortem about the way we all acted, right? Don't we have to at one point say, what happened there? Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, I knew Christian people who I dearly loved, who believed so strongly that the right way forward was to do whatever the government told them to do, no matter what it was. It didn't matter if there were questions about things. It didn't matter about, but our job as Christians is to do whatever the government tells us. Wear the mask, take the vaccine, do all the things. They were strident and absolutely committed to their viewpoint. I also know people who are like, absolutely not. Do you know how many times the government's lied to us? Like, do you want me to write it down? Do you remember the food pyramid? I mean, come on, man. Like, so they, they go all, and they have a fight. I'm not gonna wear my mask. It's gonna hurt me. It's gonna hurt me. I'm always gonna see my face. It's gonna hurt kids. We should be out, the kids should be out of school. No, the kids should be in school. Who's right? I, I don't, again, you might say, well, I was right and the history is proven, but in the moment, who's right? Everybody's trying to make a decision based upon the information they had, and they were trying their best, honestly. But you know what's happened? You know, so many people who had the, had the you know, pro-government and are now no longer friends with the anti-government, as they walk through Costco, they go the other way. Everybody needs underwear. So, so who you got? Oh, you got one of those. I know you do. Who you got? Who's right? I don't know. All I know is it left a mark. Sometimes conflict happens and no matter how hard you debate it, neither side's moving. You're not wrong. They're not necessarily wrong. Both views are defensible. Third parties come in and go, yeah, I can see it. But a sharp disagreement ensues and you part way. It's a troubling, it is a very troubling part of living in a fallen work. I tell you, it's something I will not miss when we are in glory. <laughs> 
But listen, just because you and I have conflict doesn't mean God's conflicted, right? So we have conflict, but second, God's not conflicted. Look at, so look at the end of this, this story, um, Acts 15, 39. Barnabas, of course, took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. It was the island. Remember, that was their first missionary journey. That's the way that they went. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers. And the interesting, they were commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So probably this applies to both of these parties. The church was like, I don't know, Barnabas, God bless you in your mission. And Paul and Silas go, God bless you in your mission. And they take off in different directions. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, I got to show you. So here's my map of the Mediterranean. Don't blame me, okay? It's not good. But here is uh, Jerusalem. Here is Antioch. Here is Cyprus. This looks like a... <laughs> this is the way that, this is the way that, that Barnabas... And Mark go, they go over here, the original way, and then they go through the island, and right here is where Mark left them. So he's going to take Mark back over the same ground that they went before, visiting all the churches in this area. Paul and Silas, they go up this way. You know why they go this way? Because this track is the track the Judaizers went on, and we're teaching everybody it's Jesus plus. So they get to go take the council letter to all of the churches that were influenced by it. Now, when you look at that and you say to yourself, okay, which is better, Paul and Barnabas going just one of these directions or splitting into two teams and going both of the directions, what's your solution? Two. Two's way better than one. Look, it's amazing. Right. Who did that? Well, God did. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So their fight turned out to further the mission of God? Yeah. Their conflict. Yeah, but God's not conflicted. He, t- he takes conflicts all the time and he uses them for his, his glory and the furtherance of the mission and the good even of the people. I remember a, there's a church in my area in Vancouver area and it had such a huge influence in the entire area there, but not deliberately necessarily. The church actually was always pretty focused on the growth of that one, you know, property that they had. But the pastor there was a really gifted guy and he kept having young guys keep coming up. And of course, he liked to preach all the time and he didn't always want to give his space to others because he was like, I don't want you to leave the church and go and plant a church nearby because, you know, it'll take away from this. So that, that would happen. It, was, it would reach lots of sharp disagreements, Right. And these young guys would go and they plant a church. And a young guy would go and they plant a church. And one guy goes plant a church. And one guy goes works in a church and stuff like this. So without being deliberate about it, the church ended up, you know, multiplying their impact everywhere. I remember sitting down. The, the pastor was a friend of mine. And I sat down with him one time. I said, dude, everywhere I go, everyone talks about how your church had an influence on them through the guy who came from your church out of acrimony. I said, dude, can you imagine what would happen if you did this on purpose? He said, yeah, no, I, 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 I guess I see, what you, I see what you mean. Yeah, you and him had a bit, you guys had sharp disagreement, but the Lord took it and he, he made something beautiful. <laughs> I, wor- I worked at a Christian college in New Zealand when I first got there. And while I was there, I realized very quickly it was a new startup and the way that they viewed what they wanted to do with the ministry was not necessarily what I viewed. And I was young, 26, right? So I know everything. And so like 
were disagreeing about stuff. And eventually I ended up leaving thinking, I, I wanted desperately to be in the academy, right? Because people respect you more if you say, Dr. So-and-so, and I teach this academy, you know, academic position. And I desperately wanted to be in that and have that fame and stuff. But the Lord, through that process, said, Jeff, I don't think you want to be in the academy. And so I came back to the North America and I started being a pastor. I wouldn't be here today had not a sharp disagreement happened at the beginning of my ministry. Some of you are like, that's not a place where God. But I think it is. I remember the guy who worked with me when I was a young adults pastor and I was kind of bringing him up. And I remember when I became the lead pastor of my church, I gave the young adult pastor ministry to somebody else from outside the church and not him. I remember coming into my office and just losing it on me, getting so angry and yelling at me. And I was like listening, listening, listening. I got to the point where I walked over to the window and I was praying to quietly, Lord, don't let me hit him. Don't let me. This is a Mennonite church. Do not let me hit this guy, right? So, so upset, sharp disagreement. Well, he took off. He ended up doing some stuff for two, three, four years. Things got a little bit rocky for him. But he ended up in a church, I don't know, about 15, 20 miles away from where I was, and they eventually made him their lead pastor, and that church started proliferating all over the place. God was doing great things in our church as well. We ended up partnering together in a bunch of church plants, and I remember the day that he came back, and he he came into my office, and and he said, Jeff, I guess, first of all, I got to tell you, I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was thinking about. I was like, that's right. (laughs) No, I didn't. I didn't. I said, dude, I don't, I don't know what to say. To be honest with you, I understand where you're coming from. I've been in those shoes before. I get it. And yet I don't, I got to tell you, I do, I do the same thing again. And I'm sorry if that still hurts you. He goes, no, it doesn't hurt me. I understand where you're coming from. But then I said to him, do you see what the Lord's done though? I mean, it's amazing what the Lord has done through this sharp disagreement. We have a conflict. God's not, he's just not conflicted. He takes our stubbornness and issues and uses it in the most remarkable way. I Look, I wish we could all see eye to eye. I wish there were no disagreements on ministry strategy. But this side of heaven, there are. God takes all of that and accomplishes his perfect ends. He's not conflicted. So what do we do with that information? Okay, so we got the whole passage. What do we do? Okay, so finally... You ever, seen, you ever seen those little, uh, at the end of a movie where you followed characters all the way through and then they end at some point, you're like, I wonder what happened? And they do the little epilogue with the printing on the end, you know? John ended up going and becoming the president of the United, you know, like whatever. What, what is that epilogue? What is, what is that printing for John, Mark, and Paul? Well, third, we, we in light of this stuff that, we have conflicts. God's not conflicted. We, we, we need to learn to let it go. Because here's what happens to this guy. We, John Mark shows up in the rest of Scripture in interesting spots, and it's always associated with Paul. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. This is the book in Philemon. He's writing the letter to try to talk Philemon into a, a, a letting uh, a friend of his go out of slavery. So Philemon, he's, he's writing to him and he says, look, uh, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he sends his greetings to you and so do who? Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. They're my fellow workers. Wait, what? 
So at some point, Mark and Paul make nice Colossians chapter 4. At the end of that book, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. It comes, if he comes to you, guys, come on, welcome him. Paul. And Jesus, who's called Justice. These are, are the only men of the circumcision, the only Jewish guys among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they, including Mark, have been a comfort to me. Dying breath. These are the last words the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament. He knows he's going to die. When you're about to die, there are certain people you want around you. I'm assuming they're going to be the important ones, yeah? The ones who are going to provide you the most comfort, the most value, the most insight. They're the ones who know you best. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Remember, he was just mentioned in the previous verses. He's taken off. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. But here's what I need you to do on my dying bed. Can you get Mark? And you, can you bring him with you? For he is very, he's very useful to me. For what? Yeah, the thing you rejected him for, Paul. Now listen, this doesn't mean that Paul was wrong at the moment that he and Barnabas were having a fight. He may not have been ready, but it does mean that at some point along the way, they let it go. That they recognize that Christian brothers, we're going to be with each other for eternity, and we might as well get a head start now on getting along. I don't know who was right. I don't know who was wrong. But we, now we can, we can get along. Look, we've all had conflict. God's used them though. So what do we do? We, we, we have to let it go. So look, have you had former conflict in a church over, I don't know, maybe, maybe it wasn't a piano bench. Maybe it was something bigger. And you had a view and they had a view and you look back and you're like, no, I'd do the same thing. Maybe you look back and you say you wouldn't do the same thing. But they look back and they say, I'd do the same thing. Like it's just, they, they're convinced of their own point of view. And maybe you're both right. Maybe from your particular perspective, knowing what you knew at the time, that's exactly what it is we would all expect you to do. You differed in an opinion regarding strategy. You wanted another leadership decision than what was made. But listen, God used it. Think about it. Just think about your life. Think about that, that sharp disagreement, what the Lord's done in the ministry of people that you have disagreed with, and then look at what he's done in your life. And can't you say, can't you say, along with Paul and Barnabas, wow, Lord used it. Right. So maybe it's time to let it go. And you still see the people you disagreed with about COVID. Like they're, they're around you all the time. You don't invite them to dinner anymore. You don't want to get into it. Okay, then don't get into it. Maybe you were right and they were right. I don't know. You know what? Maybe in the next pandemic, you'll both be on the same side and you'll reconnect. Why don't we, why don't we, before that happens, 
Before that happens, why don't we just look at it and say, you know, sometimes people just disagree about stuff, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we might as well get a head start of what's going to happen inevitably in eternity, so maybe it's just time to let it go. Here, God, take it all. I don't know. Maybe you have political differences with friends that you've had for a long time. Maybe they liked a girl that you liked. Maybe there's been this massive relationship hurt. They didn't play your kid. But you can look at your life and their life and you can see how God has used those things. So now that you see it in retrospect, you still are convinced. But maybe it's just time to get over it, yeah? Maybe it's just time to get, look, I am not asking you to give up convictions about your side in the conflict. I'm not asking you or I to, mar- I, I, I'm asking you or I to marvel at the sovereignty of God and his loving care. I'm asking us to consider how the Lord has worked it out. And considering all of that, I'm, I'm just asking, maybe it's time to let it go. Maybe pray for us. Lord, uh, we're not good at this. I'm so encouraged that this is in the Bible. And I'm encouraged by the way that Luke presents it because it is so real. It's like what we deal with all the time. So God, I, I am gonna pray that you would make us malleable, make us people who are not gonna stick our, you know, stick our, uh, our heels in the mud and will not be moved over things that we maybe need to consider differently. But I also thank you, Father, that when we do stick our heels in the ground and we are absolutely convinced of those things, and even it creates a relational breakup, Lord, that you use those things to further your mission for your glory, and ultimately you use it for our good. And I pray that we could see all of that, and then we could come back together and we could say, you know what? God is good all the time. So help us, Father, to turn our hearts towards you and toward each other. I pray there's people in the room as I've been talking who their minds have been racing about that person or that thing. I pray this week, Lord, that they might make a a, a decision to call, text, visit, pray for those they disagree with, that we might have unity of spirit and the bond of peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.